0: Made on Jajaburung Country.
1: I know a lot of Aboriginal families that they've had heaps of problems that people don't think that they're able to parent as well as anyone else. So there is that thing. I remember saying, "No, like I just want you to know, I'm fine. I've already got a child at home. I actually know sort of what I'm doing."
0: This is not Not the the babysitter. babysitter. A show from Women's Health, Lodden Mallee, about fatherhood and breaking free of gender stereotypes. I'm Ella Burke. Today you'll hear from Dallas Whitcomb, a dad, an Aboriginal man who is the executive director of Bendigo and District Aboriginal Cooperative, or Badac. You might like to imagine that this episode is slap bang in the middle of a T intersection where being a man, Aboriginality and parenting status meet. As you listen to Dallas, you might like to think about whether these aspects of identity are ever really separable and which elements are most relevant in the different settings and contexts he describes. A note that this episode contains a story about a difficult birthing experience. Here's Dallas.
1: I'm Dallas Whittacombe, I'm 33 years old, I'm a father of two, I'm uh, married to my wife Jess, um, my children are Mac, he's four, uh, he goes to, oh he's not he's not at kinder till next year but he goes to daycare, with his sister Isla who is uh, two and a half. I'll probably add that my wife's pregnant too with our third, so our third's due on incident late September. Ah, Congratulations. Yeah, thanks.
0: Tell me a little bit about a typical week in your household and what arrangements do you have in place for sharing paid and caring work?
1: Uh, So I work full-time, Monday to Friday, 8 till I get home at about half past 5. My wife works three days a week. She's a teacher. Um, She works... Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but she's on the leadership team at a primary school. So she works probably every uh, fourth Friday, um, third or fourth Friday as well. So our children go to daycare Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. If she does work the Friday, um, I normally try and take leave or something like that. We don't have uh, a lot of supports in Bendigo. My mother lives in Queensland and she she used to live here, but she's moved up to Queensland probably out months ago. And Jess's parents have a farm uh, between uh, Sea Lake and um a few hours away. So when the kids were little, it was great. Jess's mum would come down a few days a week, uh, which I'm hoping she'll do again. I'm sure she will for the third. Um, so that it gives Jess a bit of support while I'm at work. Um, but I guess, um, yeah, so that, that's sort of how it works. So the kids are at daycare and um, then I guess weekends are really important for me in a sense that the kids do, the children do miss me a lot. And um, I think it's it's really important that I have time with them away from Jess as well. So to give her a bit of a break as well. Um, I'll play uh, cricket during the summer, so that pretty much puts Saturdays out. Um, I'm really looking forward to, you know, when Mac gets a little bit older, he can come along and spend the day with me. But at this point, a whole day, particularly if I'm out in the field, um, for a whole Saturday, it's it's too hard to take him. Um, so, yeah, and then during the winter, we try and uh, do something definitely one of the days. I mean, there's still always the household that you got to sort of keep on top of, so shopping and all that sort of stuff on one of the days. In this sort of instance with um, the current pandemic, it's, it's hard. I haven't taken really taken the kids to the supermarket. Um, but like last Sunday, we went to Mount Alexander, just me and the kids built cubbies. So that sort of thing is really important to get them out to the bush and um, just you know throw rocks, sticks, whatever they want to do.
0: Did you always see yourself being a dad and what did you think it was going to I did. be
1: like? I wanted to be a young father, I thought. Um, but so when I was, um, so I'm the oldest of seven children, so there were six boys and a girl, and I always thought that I had um, a lot of responsibilities growing up with younger siblings. So there was six, six boys um, in sort of we were born within sort of nine and a half years. So we're all pretty close in age. So I felt like like I remember making their lunches and breakfast and stuff like, that. like There was a lot of responsibilities put onto me and um, the brother under me because it's only sort of four week, 14 months between us two. I felt like we did a lot in the house. And then when I was um 18, I'd finished school and I was um, working in Melbourne while my, my father passed away and um, really suddenly and mum was pregnant with, um, the seventh, which there was eleven year gap between my youngest brother and my little sister. So dad passed away, mum had the baby six weeks afterwards. So um I thought so once I got married, met Jess, got married and she was pregnant with our first child, I sort of said, I've got this, don't worry. I remember getting up at night with my sister. It's really easy. Um I know what I'm doing. I've changed nappies before. And then I remember probably we had a really, really bad birthing experience um, just with complications and stuff that happened. My son was 10 pound 5, you know, my wife's quite small, so that didn't work out well. I just thought of something that was really, really tough as a dad. Go for it. Can I talk about that? Yeah. So what happened in the birth was uh, Mac was obviously he was a week late he was way too big like um, and then Jess lost, lost a lot of blood and then um, uh, had um, you know her uterus wouldn't wouldn't go back and um, so she was taken but they told me oh because they didn't think it was that bad but. We had a student that we took along and she said, oh, I remember her saying, oh, she's losing a lot of blood. Um, so then they took her to theatre and said, oh, we'll be back soon. So I went to a shared room with another, there was another mother there, there's curtain across. And I was there and they said, I'd bring the baby. Um, and the baby come. And then they said, they come and said, oh, look, Jess, will be a bit longer, there's... Few, few complications or something, but she's okay, just be a bit longer. And Jess's parents arrived, so they will sort of with me. I think they are with me. I don't know. It's a bit of a blur, but Jess had um, done that thing that they asked new brothers to do is um, get some colostrum, mm-hmm. like put it in little syringes. So I had some of that. So I was feeding the baby with that in the tea room because they sort of said, oh, we'll find a different room for you, so bring the baby and point it out. And then they said, oh, look, um, Jess is in a critical condition in um, and she's going to have to go to ICU and we're going to have to try and insert like a water bag um, to, I guess, stop the bleeding. Then mm. I was like, oh, well. So they said, oh, the child will, Mac will have to go to special care. You can spend time with him up there but he can't stay. So the hardest point of my whole life Was leaving the hospital, not knowing if Jess was going to be okay, starting to think like, did I want a child without Jess? You know, because I mean, you think it was because I had to leave the hospital, so I have to get the camera and all the bags, including the baby stuff, Mm. and take them home again. And I really think that could have been handled so much better by the health system, because I was the dad. So therefore, like, why couldn't have I stayed in the room with the baby? i was going to do all the same i was going to do the feeding the changing everything i could there was nothing wrong with mac he was healthy as but he had to go to special care because i wasn't the mum because jess wasn't able to be there and now i just there and i wasn't at the hospital Mm. so i think that that was really really tough as a dad
0: that must have been incredibly scary
1: oh it was yeah yeah But, look, it's all it's all worked out really well. But I just remember walking to the car and that was because I was the dad mm. that I was not allowed to stay with the baby in a shared room or any room. And so what, the baby had to stay by himself.
0: And what message did you feel like you were being told with those decisions being made?
1: Uh, just, I just wasn't welcome. I wasn't, you know. It was just clear that I wasn't staying there. I tried everything I could. I'm like, why can't I stay in special care? I don't know because there's other babies in there,
0: mm.
1: like it was just really tough. Hmm. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think that 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 was a hard bit about being a dad. So I think as much as you do think you're an equal part, some systems don't. You're not. Mm. <laughs> After the birthing and stuff, we, we got home and um, I said to her, no, nah, I've got this. And I remember uh, probably three or four months in, I rang my mum and said, did I actually help with my sister? Because I don't remember it being this tough.
0: <laughs> so what was happening that made you think, oh, I hadn't, this isn't what I thought?
1: So I think with the first child, uh, yeah, it really, you, you don't know. So before you have children, you do... You feel like you've got responsibilities, but in a sense, I don't think you have. You, you're very much in control of what you do. But you've got this little person that absolutely is in your hands. And, you know, it's a really scary thought to sit back and think. And I think every, every first-time parents do it, you think, what What are we doing? We don't know what we're doing. You know, um, you're second-guessing yourself all the time. You, you also... You have to... Learn. You have to learn to, you know, you sort of think that um, you have an idea what's going on, but you don't. You don't know how to be a parent. Like you haven't. You're not taught how to be a parent, so you've got to. you got to sort of work it out. Because I, I found with the second child, you start working out children, so it becomes a lot easier. But the first one, um, particularly like the um, the sleep. You know, you're up every couple of hours. So the way Jess and I sort of did it, because i i d I I don't think it's fair that the mother does all that sort of stuff at night. Um so we we had like Jess would feed the my children were breastfed, so Jess would feed do a feed and then the next feed I'd get up, get the baby, like um, grab back out of the bassinet and bring that. So Jess really didn't have to do much. Put the baby, put the baby, put it back to her. But it's that. Um, the sleeping, like just a broken sleep. You know, particularly at work, I really noticed it. Like, I think I was like everyone around me was sort of skating on thin ice, and with sort of um, a bit, like I had a senior role then. Um, I had to be really mindful that you know it's really hard being tired. And um, and I think um, my boss was really good. You know, um, she could see that I probably wasn't coping much. And I, I think, um, you know, actually just not long ago we found out that we were going through um, – so every child after that first birth, we have to have a cesarean. And we went through some um, medical records and we found out that we like just did have some postnatal depression. And I think that – we didn't sort of know that at the time, but um, I think we both sort of did. It was really tough. Like we we were at a point where we are like, you know, there was definitely moments there we're like, is this what we wanted? Mm. You know, because your life is just changes um, from anything you've ever known. <laughs> mm.
0: Do you think we're honest with expectant parents about what it's going to be like?
1: I try to be. I think I, I am with. Uh, so I was sort of one of the first out of sort of my my close group of mates that are um, that are dads now that that had a child, and I, I really tried to tried to explain it as best I could. But I don't think unless you're in that moment that you know how hard it's going to be. Mm. Um. And I want to dig
0: in. A little bit Dallas into um, just the aspects of caring for a child and what you needed to learn in becoming a dad that was different to that hands-on experience that you'd had as a sibling and you said before um, you know with your second child that you'd learn to understand children a bit better and that because um, it sounds like you came into it with some really practical skills like you know you'd change nappies You'd help, helped with your younger siblings, like those um, functional practical aspects of caregiving, which is I think often what we hear a lot about. But what were the other parts of getting to know your children and navigating that as a new family that was beyond those kind of practical skill aspects?
1: Um, I think I'm a real big believer in uh, like routine. I think children need routine. I think the other thing uh, that I, I thought a baby would just be fed, need some sleep, um, you know, you need to bath them and, and then they'll be fine. But I, I think you also, you don't pick up things, you, you don't know not going in that there's things like, um, you know, if you have a lot of visitors around and pass the baby around all day, the baby doesn't sleep well at night. There's, there's, there's all these things. You start to learn cues. You learn cues of, um, you know, you put the baby down. (laughs) I remember with um, Mac, like, he'd be screaming and think, oh, it's time for sleep. That's too late. (laughs) He should have been asleep. It's it's so – so those sort of things, particularly with babies, I think routine is fantastic. Like, so we got to five months with Mac and his sleep, I thought was really bad, and we're only going off what we knew. And we, Jess and I – I don't think we clearly weren't coping, and I can see how relationships can um, can you know, like there can be part where you're absolutely not getting along because your whole lives now are not just you two; you, they're revolved around this this child, and it, it's really hard. You don't spend any time with yourselves. You're both tired, so you think the other one's doing less. Um, It's really tough but um, at at about five months, uh, you know, I tossed up like these sleep schools and stuff like that and we went and seen um, a a brilliant lady who pretty much uh, said it's all about routine. She gave us a routine. You know, it was the um, dinner, bath, and this is when they're five months old. So, you know, I'd have to probably think whether they're in solids in but I think the most of them are. So, you know, they'd have something to eat, um, bath, dressed, in bed. And we even, we were so routine, we'd even read the same book every single night. Um, it was called Good Night Moon. I still couldn't really um, read it off word for word. But <laughs> we had that with our first and that. Then he went from, it was really tough the first night, but we had to sort of stick to this, this routine we'd been given. And then he was a seven till seven sleeper and we really got our lives back. Our second child slept really well. So, mm. yeah, that, that was really important to us to still have time for ourselves.
0: Yeah. Um, and when you think about how it's changed your relationship, um, what would you say about how you work as a team and make decisions together?
1: Um I th- I think it's really great. Like I read I think for a father we, we really have to be as equally involved as, as mum. I read I read a study, I cannot quote where it was from, but that's okay. Girls have um, they particularly with girls um, that are read to by their fathers, they do mm-hmm. a lot better through U twelve, like through high mm-hmm. school. So that was really important to me to be really um, involved in all that sort of stuff. But with the decision-making, um, I think, like, our relationship was really, I guess, strained a little bit at, at the start with our first child. But uh, that's just when you're getting to getting through it. Like, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was strained. It's just, it's just hard. Like, it's hard. But now, um, yeah, I think it's great that we're both involved in decision-making and we... Um, I think now also we know each other. We, we were married probably uh, three years before we had a child but and known each other, you know, prior to getting married. But um, now we just, I, I feel like we're so in sync in what we both know is best for the child, um, best for our children, that the decisions are sort of, if Jess makes them or I make them, they're probably going to be the same anyway. Mm.
0: Um, And Dallas, I'm curious to know if you think back to your childhood and I've kind of got this picture of all these siblings in a very busy, full household um, and you clearly sound like a very involved um, and present father. I'm wondering um, who shaped your idea of what it meant to be a dad and where did your motivation come from to want to parent in the way that you are?
1: So my father... It um, was uh, a, a, a a he was a good dad. Like he wasn't around as much as we would like, but he was always sort of. Um, he was always we could always go and talk to him. I think his way of parenting it, it was is completely different to mine. Um, he wasn't uh, hard as such. I just think some of the he wasn't as like. I can think back to a lot of sport that you sort of never come or anything like that. Um, and I I guess I took what I liked from that, but I think my father-in-law, so my wife's father, has completely shaped who I am as a dad. I I picked up early, like, throughout our relationship that Jess has got a sister and a brother, and I, I really noticed that... Um, the girls would go to their father and mum, but go to their father as much as they would go to their mother. Mm. And um, his Greg is my father-in-law, and I think he has shaped who I am. Definitely, as a dad, I think he's brilliant. Um, you know, and we, we've we had a lot of conversations. I, I actually would look up to him as a, a real father, role model to me. We have a lot of conversations now about, I ask him a lot of things. Um, He probably doesn't think they mean as much as they do, but um, he's a fantastic dad. He will even say, I've heard him say that he doesn't think he was around enough because he had the farm and stuff, but I just saw the way that his children approach him. That's the sort of relationship I want to build with the kids. So with my children, that they can talk to me about anything and, Mm. you know, and, and we, ours was, I guess ours at times was a, it wasn't, it wasn't tough. There was always a hell of a lot going on. Um, Dad at times was in and out of a bit of trouble. So we had, um, there, was, there was times he wasn't around as much. And I was the oldest, so I sort of remember it the most. But um, I, yeah, I just think that um, definitely my father-in-law shaped who I want to be. Yeah.
0: So tell me about Greg. Can you remember a time where you noticed something and said, yes, that's how I want to do it?
1: Um, well, can I tell you about the first time I met Greg? This Please is do, like, yeah. So, um, my wife took me up to the farm and Greg's a big, like, I shouldn't say big guy, he's not, he's tall. He's a bit, you know, he's, um, he could be classed as a bit intimidating, But um, not only is he big, he's also was um, swinging on a hammock with a gun. (laughs) And um, so I got out of the car and he's, like, put it down the side and said, oh, I'm really sorry, mate. I was just shooting a couple of sparrows with (laughs) a gun," And he was. And uh, he was having a bit. And, you know, I was thinking about it now. like I was quite frightened. I probably didn't really want to get out of the car. But um, he... So we sort of announced to Greg, like I'd worked in Western Australia previously and, and just not wanted to move back there. we seen it as a real uh, a way of getting ahead in life. So um, a real way so we could um, sort of earn some money in a remote community and, and come back and do the things we wanted to do. Um, so we sort of announced to Greg after meeting him a couple of times that that's what we wanted to do. And he did all the research on where we were living and I know he wasn't that keen. But he trusted that our decision was the right thing. But, I, like, even for him to be like, like, we didn't just tell Jess's mum. We told them both. They are both really keen. Greg wanted to know everything about it. I just felt like he, he loves his kids so much and he, he wants to know everything that's going on in their lives. And, um, you know, I, I've really taken a lot out of that to... Um, I just – he's just a really good dad, yeah.
0: Mm. Um, Sounds like a really high level of interest in his children and what's happening in their lives and them as people.
1: Yeah, and as as grandparents, so Greg and his wife, Jack, they're, they're the most – they're the best grandparents, you know. They, they want to know all the time what's going on with the kids. They FaceTime them. They spend heaps of time with them. Mm. Yeah, so – they sort of have just built on from that. They've probably got less rules, I think, now with going kids. But...
0: <laughs> Funny how that happens. I've noticed that too. Yeah. Um, so, Dallas, you mentioned earlier that you were one of the first people in your peer group or amongst your mates um, to become a dad. And I'm wondering now, um, on the cusp of the arrival of number three, um, how connected do you feel to other dads in your peer group?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... Very connected to, very connected to the dads that want to be as involved as myself. I think um, I do have friends that probably don't play as uh, as an important part that I that I think the rest of us play. But I remember one, so one uh, good friend of mine was over. He'd just had his first, and he sort of you know got out for the night, and he come over and. I remember at like ten past seven he said to me, So what happens now? Like when do you go in Because I had we had two by this point. And I said, No, nah, I'm just getting in the morning. He said, How do you how did you do that? <laughs> I sort of went through with him the quick routine of how we do it and then I remember on the Monday I got a phone call. He's like, Yeah, but how like what happens at that stage, this stage, that stage? He's got two children that are brewing sleepers now and and, you know, he said to his partner, he said, no, nah, it works because I was over there. You know, so, and we talk about we talk about a lot of things. Like I was with a group um, of three other dads on the weekend and we we went camping and, and it was just all talk. It, it was just talking heaps about what we do. And I think it's really important to know that there's not a right and wrong way of doing it. Everyone does it differently, but you just can pull out what you think might work for your family and what so one of those guys does a real routine thing um the other one not so much he's only got one um you know he does he does other things his child sleeps a lot longer than like in the morning than in line but goes to bed later so but you know it's it's um yeah i think it's really important to talk about it because particularly with other dads like because there is, there is a role, like, I found with my son, he has got to a certain age, he, he very rarely gives me, like, when I get home from work, I used to get home, they'd both run, like, he, I don't know whether he thinks he's a bit cool for that at the moment, or I'm not sure, they just go through stages where I've got ai know, you know, I picked up the other day that I need to spend a bit more time with just him, um, kicking the footy and stuff, so I haven't been doing that for a while, and then, so he comes around again, um, but I think that if you're talking to like if it's a father talking to other mothers, they're not sort of going to get that, understand it because we work all the time. And um, Jess is really great. She says that dad goes to get the money, you know, so I've got to go get the money to help the house. So the kids, the kids sort of understand it, but I think it's really important to speak with other dads. Um, and really work out, you know, because at times it's it's hard being a dad. I, I get a lot off my daughter. Like Isla, um, really loves me at the moment. But you know that it's gonna it changes. Um, but she will bring her book to me at night. Like yeah. she's loving that at the moment. Um, but then like she'll only get she let Jess dress her at the moment. And Mum's sort of still first cab off the rank, but. I think fathers got to work really hard because we don't spend that much time with them. We have to work extra hard to sort of get that, get that relationship and that, you know, try and get them get needing us as much as needing their mum. Mm.
0: And I can hear when you talk how closely you're paying attention to the choices your kids are making and how they're interacting with you and really that process of attunement. Um, to just what's going on with them as people. And you mentioned as well that um, that kind of breadwinner stereotype, I suppose, and the positive aspects of that, which is that, you know, dad goes out and works hard to provide um, things that we need as a family and so we can do things we want to do. I guess one of the aims of this project is to disrupt some of the negative aspects of those stereotypes. So like a negative... Um, part of that stereotype might be the breadwinner dad who isn't emotionally attuned or paying attention to their kids or, you know, doesn't take the interest in them um, when he comes home from work. Um, and I guess I'm interested to know, you know, are there ty- times that you've felt stereotyped as a dad in a negative way?
1: Like, Whoa. have you felt
0: excluded at times?
1: I don't. I don't know that I. I can like single out. Uh, like one time, like, but. I really think it's it's changed a bit, like, because I, I imagine it would have been a lot harder for our parents, our dads, to be as involved as we are. But the breadwinner thing is such, like, Jess, my wife, earned more money than me before we had children. Mm. So I just see it as sort of my turn. It's it's definitely not I'm expected to go out and, and earn the money. Like Jess earned more before we had kids. Now now it's sort of my turn. And we've both worked really hard to get the jobs we have. So um yeah, I don't I don't think so. I still think I I'd probably get particularly at work, people are surprised, which which is I guess for me, they're like, "Oh, so what? You can, you'll go home and cook tea," and I'm like, "Yeah, I, I prefer to cook. Cooking's actually, if I've had a really stressful day at work, no one's going to listen to me to when I get home. You know, it, that's the other thing. It's it's really important to know. It doesn't matter how bad your day's been at work. Um, your children are going to, they've had a different day. You know, so." I work I've worked really hard to try and I got this tree I drive out from work and I try and leave everything at the tree and pick it up in the morning. Like mentally leave it there and pick it up before I come back to work. Um, because people at home are gonna need you and I think we I call it sort of it's a bit like the chaos at hour between well five thirty and seven. But you need to put it as much as you can you can absolutely collapse after they're in bed, but you need to put in as much energy as you can, but yeah, in terms of stereotypes, I think, I think, particularly at work, like people have sort of said, "Oh, oh, you can't do that," or or you compared all the time to other dads. Oh, you should have a talk to that that dad, you know, he could learn a few things of you. Which, I yeah, I don't I don't like that. Yeah, I think that everyone's got everyone does it differently and.
0: Mm. Yeah. yeah, so um, Dallas, tell me about um, your Aboriginality.
1: My family, my mother's side's um, Darug, which is a, a community in New South Wales. Um, but in the in the 1960s, uh, my pa, who's still alive um, and lives not far from here, and he, he actually uh, would, is an awesome dad. So my mum would still ring him for a lot of things. So I guess he he helped shaped it. And um, so he, uh, they, they were up in in Sydney and um, they had to move. Um, and it was, uh, you know, there was times, say, uh, my pa went to war. He went to Vietnam and then moved uh, and settled in Eagle Hawk in Bendigo. So that was in the 1960s. Um, and then... With the money he um, got at war, he he built a built a beating business. Um, so he, uh, he he's a he's quite a dark man, and um, I guess he grew up a uh, lot of racist stuff, and um, found it. Uh, moved down here and um, brought up his family here mm. uh, with Manan. nan, and um, then. Mum, so we didn't know a lot about, I guess, our where we were from, but we always knew we were Aboriginal. Like mm. you just got to look at have a mum or my pa or whatever, and you knew. Like as kids, you'd think, oh, that's a bit strange. Like why they dark. Uh. Mm. But um, so then I was really always intrigued about what it meant, mm. and you, you would ask certain things like. My dad was pretty in tune to that too, even though he wasn't Aboriginal. Like he was, um, he was really keen for us to to explore that. Um, There's a guy down the road called Warren, an Aboriginal guy down the road who I still speak to, Uncle Warren. So dad would say, oh, I don't know, you'll have to ask Uncle Warren. So he'd take me down there, and I could ask Uncle Warren what what how to make a spear or something like that. But for me, I remember I was probably 12 or 13 and I and I seen a story on the news about town camps in Alice Springs and I was so sad that I just couldn't believe the state of the housing and stuff there that I was going to finish school, do something and move, move away. So I did that. I moved to a remote community in Western Australia, which was 900 k's northwest of Alice Springs. I spent seven years there and then I really got to learn what it meant to be Aboriginal. Like I saw kids that still go through law. I learned um, why we put okra on the way we do, like, you know, that tribe. And then I was really intrigued about what it means for us. And since then, I've always sort of wanted to work with Aboriginal people. I just think um, there's part of our community now. Like we've been here since the 60s. We've, there's, there's not a lot of... Judge people that live here. Mm. So so there's always been a sense of connection between Aboriginal people that have lived come from other places. Um, and the Stolen generation has affected a lot of that. Like mm. People moved because if they didn't, kids were going to get taken. So they were on the run as such. Um, so that's why a lot of people sort of ended up here. and You know, even uh, a place like um, there's a group of women that are still around today, a lot of them. Some of them are passed on, but they sat around the table and said, We need something. So they started, you know, the Badat and the organisations that we've got at the moment. But yeah, I, I think um being an Aboriginal dad, I, first I just called myself a dad, you know, but I, it, it's different. I was I was actually trying to explain to my son the other day, there was a um Aboriginal man on the wiggles playing Digital and Dad and Max said, Oh, Dad, you got one of them and I said, Yeah, yeah, dad you know, we can play them, so an Aboriginal. And, you know, women aren't allowed to play them because that can affect their fertility and um, so like that. So my son said, oh, why hasn't he got a T-shirt on? Because it's funny what they pick up. So then I said, oh, well, he's just painted up for like a ceremony. And he said, well, so so then we're, we're in the bush and this just happened on the weekend. And I said, like, this is a really special place for Aboriginal people. We're at a special place on Mount Alexander. And he said... Oh, that'd be cold! Like that's the first thing he thought of because he thought all Aboriginal people don't have t-shirts on, you know. <laughs> so, I explained, nah, like we have, have a possum skin plague like, or we might have kangaroo skin or something on to keep us warm. But um, it's funny now, like even when I've been up to the farm at the grandparents with the kids, like Mac was really intrigued the other day. Buy some kangaroo tracks that were through a sand, some sand through a sand hill. They're up there riding their bikes so. Yeah, we we spoke about that. I, I'm very much of that. I can I I experienced a bit of racism at high school, so. Um, Sorry, Dallas, Just
0: just before we move on on to that story, take me back to Mount Alexander and being out in the bush with Mac. Um, when you're out there in the bush, what is it? Um, how would you begin to describe? what that means to you and what you're hoping to share with Mac. Oh, I,
1: um, what it means to me. So I think it, it means for me, so I had to file there too. There was two of us. So, you know, there's many different reasons we're out there. We're, we're also out there because Jess is pregnant and it's Sunday. <laughs> And everyone's had enough, so
0: get them out know, of the house.
1: <laughs> so you know, even halfway there, they're like, "Daddy, how far away is this? We want to go home." <laughs> and we get there, and they're like, "Oh!" Uh, so I love, I love seeing their reactions to things. So seeing how high up we are, I love them. I love you know they pick up things. I, I get to show them things, and like we sat, we sat on a rock, and there was a a western rosella, I think that's it, a really red, a really dark red rosellas. Well, it might be a crimson. Anyway, there's a part at Mount Alexander where two rosellas will sort of meet, so um, two different sorts. And I've seen this quite, the one I haven't seen much, the red one, and I said to the kids, oh, can you see that? And Isla could, Mac couldn't quite see it. It moved. He could see it. I love that. I love that they can just, you know, see a lot of new things. We started building a hut so the kids were grabbing sticks. We're going back there this weekend to work on it. Um, hopefully it's still there. But um, I I guess I don't take – I've learnt now not to take expectations. It's like cooking a good meal. Like all the meals I've ever tried to cook, like, I'm like, I think the kids would really love like a really fresh stir fry. No, i would just rather bake beans. You know, don't <laughs> – it's hard like that to um, buy and – you, what, you can't have any expectations, I guess, because you'll be disappointed when things don't go the way you think they're going to go. But go out the bush, just see what they find. Like, I, I did a treasure hunt when uh, when we were in that first lockdown. I was like, we we need to, I need to get the kids out. They're going to be safe out the bush. Like, let's go. It's exercise. I think it's it's not breaking the rules. So we had, um, and they pick up things too that you don't see. So. I had like this checklist of things. I, I was pretty good when I was like, they need to see a black bird. I was thinking of things, a big stick, things they might find would tick off, butterfly. But we were sort of walking back towards the car and the kids found this line of caterpillars. So then they'd put sticks down You know, when they're sort of attached and they go as one. It was so cool. We would have spent half an hour there. Um, so just talking about it, building bridges from them to go under and over and I just think. That sort of time, it's more the time. Like, mm. um, if I, I, I do find it really important that, um, as an Aboriginal dad, they do get to spend time out there, but it's also just as a dad, like, mm. um, uh, and the other things as they start growing up. If I don't have the answers, I've got family that'll know, or you know, I, I've got things if they want to go and make okay, I'll know where to go. If if they want to hear a story about. Um, the mountain near Heathcare, you know, there's there's limestone found there. There's there's a green limestone there. The, it's only there in in all of Australia. It's the only places found. Yeah, it was fear, found on spear tips in Darwin. Mm. You know, so there's a big trade and all those sort of stories. And then I've got mates sort of from um, Western Victoria that can talk about eels and how I used to harvest eels once here and trade them everywhere. You know, so what well, you know, I, I guess my my point is, I'm just going to wait for the kids to come to me to ask more questions. Mm. But they've got boomerangs, all this cool stuff in their rooms. So, Yeah. I've,
0: I've
1: preempted that the questions are going to come. I've done things.
0: <laughs> Planting they've the got,
1: seeds. They've got possum skins and stuff like that. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like quite a few different ways that you stay connected to culture and bring that into your family life as well. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, so take me to back to high school. And you were saying no, you experienced no, quite a bit no, of racism. about
1: the school thing. Like, unless, unless I was like people saw me get dropped off, they wouldn't have known I was Aboriginal right like, because I don't – I'm not very dark. So they'd see mum and then they are like, oh, it must be original. But they used to do things like – I think – I really hope the times have changed a bit where it's not because I used to try and hide behind it. Like, no, nah, I'm not. It's just mum or, you know, whatever. It's funny because my brother under me, um, uh, he looks a lot like my mum where I look like my dad. So he sort of probably didn't have a choice of who he wanted to identify as. But we, we didn't have a choice in the sense. We, we were brought up to be proud, but it gets hard in school. Like we had, I remember, so they used to have this thing. We went we went to a private school, but they had this thing where they would say, could all the Koori kids please meet at the office? Like in the middle of class, mm. So you would have to hop up. You go out there and they'd do like cultural activity or something, which like we we're, we we're already knew stuff, so I don't know why they did that.
0: Mm. But um And how did you feel being singled out that way?
1: Because I, I you'd get back and the kids would think it was funny to say I remember this, this one this one kid saying like it, it must be um you must have two nostrils for unleaded and leathered petrol. So insinuating that we sniff you all the time. Um and you know, I I I want my I really want my kids to be proud, but also to be able to have really tough skins and not care about what people are gonna say. Because my mum, I guess I probably only got a little bit of what my mum got. Mm. Like she told me it was really tough in school um when she was there. And I, I, can, I can only imagine my granddad like that, that would have been even although he was on it mission so that might have been just an all aboriginal school but Mm. yeah um so that sort of stuff has um i think it's got a lot better i hope it has um but with my children i I hope that i can build that sort of resilience in them to not to be really proud of it and to talk Mm. about it first so not to be questioned about it but to actually talk about it yeah
0: and what about the health system, Dallas? How did the health system respond to your Aboriginality?
1: Yeah, so there's a really, really I, you know, I haven't got confirmation of this because I sort of don't want to investigate it. But with my second child, we were we were going, so um, the birthing experience was a lot better. It was fantastic. Um, it was a cesarean, but it was just seemed so much easier. Mm. Um, so we were leaving. Uh, with the, with Isla um, in the capsule, and we got to the front desk and they said, oh, you have to wait. You have to wait because we need to take those um, ID. And the, there was an alarm on my daughter, so she couldn't leave the thing. Um, so I didn't think much of it.
0: What was the uh, alarm? Do you mean like a physical... So
1: it goes off if you leave the ward. Okay. So I just thought that was a new thing that must come in. Right. Um, but then I was talking to mates and they didn't have it.
0: Hmm.
1: I was like, what's going on here? And, and I've got a bit of a, like, my work allows me to work alongside child protection and things like that at times and... and um. If the child's at risk of, I guess, being removed from the mother, these bans are put on. But I I don't want to know much more, but I, my belief is it was put on because we're Aboriginal. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and, like, I mentioned it to Jess and she's like, oh, yeah, I remember we had to wait. Like, she's not looking into it as much, but... Mm. Um why else would it have been? Like I can't
0: understand why beyond that. There. There's nothing that you know mm. and does that does that make you hesitate as well? I've heard other indigenous people um, talk about the sometimes how collecting information about whether someone identifies as indigenous can actually be a bit of a dehumanising experience as well. Like could you tick this box, please? how to yeah. identify and that thing of being singled out.
1: Yeah, definitely. The other thing is I remember like the Winter Olympics where I'm when i when Isla was born. So it was really great because I was at the hospital. I spent the three days there, but I was doing like most of the night shift because I'd be able to sit there in that sort of common area. Jess could sleep and I was just there. And like I had this nurse, she kept asking like, oh, are you okay? Do you want me to take her? Oh, do you want me to take her? And I really felt like, being Aboriginal, first off, you don't want to give anyone an excuse to um, have a reason to remove a child. I don't know whether that's just. Do you know what I mean? So I was sort of yeah. like, no. And then I could see other. They had heaps of other other babies in the office, but I was like, no, because you do feel like you're being judged. So, and and I, I know a lot of a lot of Aboriginal families that you know they've had heaps of problems that people don't think that they're able to parent as well as anyone else. So mm. there is that thing. I remember saying, no, I, like I just want you to know I'm fine. I've already got a child at home. I actually know sort of what I'm doing. So, yeah. yeah. Each time you come in, you're waking up a baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. What we're sort of touching on at the moment and what I want to put to you is that, you know, some non-Indigenous people – don't understand why we need to know about colonisation and Stolen Generations and there's this idea that it's in the past. But what I'm hearing in that experience is that, you know, it's the past is not the past. The impacts are very present.
1: Um, yeah, we know that right now there's more children being removed from families than there was in the Stolen generation. Mm. So particularly in Victoria, like there's more... Children being removed, and it's like tenfold. It's like, you know, it's going up by twenty five percent every year. And I, and I'm not here to say that a lot of those children shouldn't be removed. But I'm not here. But I'll, all I'm saying is, well, I, I do think they should be removed. I think there's a lot more work we could be doing, um, around around that, you know, that I guess that early work when mums are pregnant about how hard it's going to be, you know, what we're going to do. But I think just in saying like that I was a bit, um, I was really conscious of that nurse not taking the baby because I would feel like I was incompetent after that bread that we're Aboriginal of a new, so I was really conscious of that. Why? Because that's something that's been down from my grandpa to my mum to me. So as much as it was then, I can't help how I feel like that. For a reason, and it's because children were removed and still are, and you know you see it all the time that Aboriginal children are removed more often than non-Aboriginal children. Like I, I really believe that, and there's a we got to be really conscious all the time about um, yeah, it's just in, it's just there. So it's not in the past; it's definitely it's now. I think it's it's becoming easier. Like definitely. The, the way we live now is, like, I think, you know, I hope that my children, when they are at school, someone can say, that's really cool, you're Aboriginal. You know, you actually know where you're from. There's not many people that are non-Aboriginal that can trace it right back to where you're from. You know, that bit of earth is where you're from. And I think that, that'll be really proud when I do take my children back to New South Wales and when they're old enough to know what, means and say look this is where we're from like not there's not many people um that can trace their their whole family back to one spot you know and the 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 other first people there.
0: Incredibly powerful yeah
1: yeah yeah but um yeah I don't know this has been really good it's a hard conversation to have
0: You've been listening to Not the Babysitter, made by me, Ella Burke, for Women's Health Lodden Mallee, and supported by the City of Greater Bendigo. And now, listeners, over to you. What's one thing that struck you from this conversation? Do you feel like the systems you interact with treat dads as equal and competent parents? And if not, do you suspect it's because of outdated stereotypes about men and parenting or perhaps other aspects of identity like Aboriginality, race or ability? And what would you like to see change? To share your reactions, ideas or questions on the show, send a voice memo to hello at whlm.org.au. Dallas Whitaker is executive director of Bendigo and District Aboriginal Cooperative. To find out more about their work, visit bdac.com.au.